0: Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to present tonight's lecture by Maud Barlow. I'd like to thank our co presenters, the Institute for Sustainable Solutions, as well as Black Ink Publishers and Melbourne Writers Festival, for making Maud available for a talk at the University tonight. I'd also like to thank the producers of the Seymour Centre's Bite Season for allowing us to use the downstairs theatre tonight. As you can see, we are in front of a set of the Crucible. That's, that's very generous and very flexible of them to uh, find a space for us tonight. Tonight's lecture by Maude Barlow will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have a handheld mic which the usher will pass around for your questions. Maud will then be available to sign her book at the Glebe Bookstore in the foyer outside after the lecture. And I also thought I'd let you know that today is Indigenous Literacy Day and Glee Books are denoting 5% of all book sales today to this cause, so I encourage you to buy Maud's book today instead of in the bookshop on the weekend. Uh, for the next Sydney Ideas lecture, on the 24th of September, we will be joined by another Canadian, author of the best-selling A Short History of Progress, Ronald Wright. And his lecture will address the theme, What is America? Then on the 29th of September, we are joined by one of Australia's leading environmental writers, Tim Flannery. He will be talking about his new quarterly essay, Now or Never. But for tonight, I'd like to welcome Rosemary Lister, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law and Director of the Australian Centre for Environmental Law at the University of Sydney. Rosemary will introduce Maud Barlow and her work to you. Thank you, Rosemary.
1: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure as Director of the Australian Centre for Climate and Environmental Law to invite you all here this evening. Um, And I'm absolutely delighted to be introducing Maud Barlow. Um, I think this is going to be a very significant event, not only in, in Sydney, but for Australia. And it's a very prestigious event, of course, that we are able to welcome a world leading activist in the area of water this particular uh, lecture. The lecture is co-hosted by Sydney uh, Ideas which many of you know. It's the University of Sydney Institution, also known as the International Public Lecture Series and it's co-hosted by a very new institution at the University of Sydney which is called the Institute of Sustainable Solutions and this institute was only launched on the 15th of July this year so I hope. For very much that you will get to know more about the activities of this institute. It's an interdisciplinary institute which fosters research, teaching and community outreach around the topics of development, health, energy and the environment on an interdisciplinary basis with water falling within the environment grouping. And I'm currently the interim co-director of the Institute, and as an environmental lawyer, I specialise in the areas of water law and energy and climate law. And in fact, the privatisation of water and energy has been a major focus of my research for more than a decade now, which I am so – and that's the reason that I'm so delighted to be introducing Maud this evening. The title of Maud's address is Uh, Blue Covenant, the Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle for the Right to Water, and I think that it's very significant that this address is being given at a time when we've been warned by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that with the increasing risks of climate change, hundreds of millions of people are likely to be facing a situation where their access to water resources will be critical. And the question for us is who is best placed at this time? to manage water resources, government or multinational corporations, and that is what Maud will be talking to us about tonight. But before I go on to introduce Maud a bit more formally, I'd like to share a couple of perspectives on the current status of privatisation of water in Australia, um, we're all talking a lot about privatisation at the moment because of the Yema government's plans to uh, privatise or at least encourage private sector involvement in the electricity industry but and there seems to be quite a lot of concern about that but from my perspective i feel as if the increasing privatization of australia's water resources has slipped rather more beneath the radar than has occurred in the energy sector so as many as you of you know in uh, the mid 1990s the australian government signed what's called the national competition policy and a key feature of this policy was to deregulate the australian economy to create more competition and also to restructure the provision of government services including water. So throughout Australia, water providers, which used to be government-owned, have been restructured, corporatised and established as state-owned corporations with the express objective that they should act as successfully as private sector businesses. Now, in 2006, the New South Wales government enacted new legislation called the Water, Water Industry Competition Act, to encourage private sector involvement in the water market in New South Wales. And just a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago, the water industry competition, general regulations were promulgated, which brings this legislation into effect. And it's interesting to note that It encourages the private sector to become water and sewerage network operators as well as to enter the water market as retailers. Now, I've recently had a good look at the license conditions which are imposed on these network operators and private water service providers, and while they might be regarded as some as fairly stringent, they are certainly nowhere near as stringent as the operating licence under which Sydney Water operates. For example, there will be no price surveillance of the private sector in the same way that the independent pricing and regulatory tribunal currently sets prices for consumers in New South Wales. Now, When we turn our attention to the allocation of water resources in Australia, we need to remember, too, that in 1994, the Council of Australian Governments agreed to totally reform the way in which water was allocated in Australia, and the idea behind this was to find an efficient vehicle for allocating water amongst competing users, as well as preparing water management plans for specific water management areas, which would include sustainable and ecological objectives. State governments were paid $16 billion by the Commonwealth government to implement this reform agenda under national competition policy payments, and the National Competition Council was the body which regularly reviewed whether or not state governments had promoted the agenda that they'd agreed to under COAG, the Council of Australian Governments. Now, as a lawyer, I've noticed some very significant legal developments which has uh, implemented this reform agenda because the key plank of water reform in Australia is to establish a national water trading market. So the legal changes which have happened in New South Wales I'm talking about, but it's happened in other states as well, is that water licences, which used to be allocated for between 10 and 15 years before they were reviewed by government, have now been converted to perpetual licences. In other words, once they're allocated, they're allocated forever unless specifically cancelled by government. They've also been separated from land, which means that they are tradable independently from land ownership, and that has the consequence that anyone can enter the water market to buy up water allocation licences, and not only that – the legislation makes it clear that water allocation licenses are regarded as private property, in which case compensation must be paid under complex arrangements if the government should interfere with these private property rights. Um, the economic justification for this, as we question whether or not water in Australia is becoming increasingly privatised, um, the economic justification is that we need to move water to its highest value use. But this does not necessarily consider the social and environmental consequences of water being traded out of one agricultural area in Australia to another. And for example, a pilot trading scheme in the murray diamond Basin um, was reviewed by the CSIRO and what the CSIRO found was that 99% of the water which was traded out of New South Wales and Victoria moved down to South Australia to establish vineyards and dairy farms, which was seen as a very successful economic outcome. But what the CSIRO also noted was that there were environmental consequences to the water trade in that there were significant increases in salinity in the river system. And I don't think that we need to talk about the social, we don't need to um, perhaps explain too much the social consequences which have been very well aired in other forums where um, water is traded out of local government areas or rural areas. Only yesterday, the Murray-Darling Basin Commission announced that for September 2008, system inflows remained critically low, August rainfall was below average, and the monthly system inflow of 275 gigalitres was less than one-fifth of the long-term average. The combined inflow for the three winter months of 670 gigalitres was the equal fifth lowest in 117 years of records of inflows into the Murray-Darling. And I think it's very significant that Maud is here with us this evening, just one day after the Commission has made this announcement, and I think that her address is extremely timely. Now, It really is an honour to have Maud here and to introduce her. As I said, she's a world-renowned activist in the area of water privatisation. She's been bestowed with six honorary doctorates by Canadian universities and is the author of at least 16 books on very diverse subjects such as water privatisation, international trade and her concerns about globalisation and uh, the global economic order. In, uh, she's been awarded the 2005-2006 Lennon Cultural Freedom Fellowship Award, and the purpose of this award is to recognise individuals whose work inspires domestic and international communities that are struggling to uphold and defend their right to cultural freedom and diversity. She's also been awarded the 2005 Right Livelihood Award known as the Alternative Nobel Prize for her work in global water justice. She's a a member of a number of organisations, the national chairperson of the Council of Australians, which is Canada's largest public advocacy organisation, as well as the founder of the Blue Planet Project. She's also director with the International Forum on on Globalisation, which is a San Francisco-based research and education organisation Organization which is opposed to economic globalization. This is just an indication of some of the many organizations of which Maud has been not only founder and chairperson, but also the organizations in which she's made a very significant contribution. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Maud to the podium to deliver her address.
2: Thank you so much, Rosemary. Thank you, Meredith. And uh, thank you all for being here on this gorgeous spring evening. Um, Not that I compare myself in any way, but I... I When I hear a lovely introduction like that, I think of uh, an an introduction uh, Winston Churchill once had that was quite glowing, and afterwards he said, when he got up to speak, he said he could hardly wait to hear what he had to say. (laughs) So I thank you for your lovely words, and I thank you for your welcome. It's been a wonderful, wonderful trip. My husband Andrew um, Davis is with me, and we've been in uh, your beautiful country for about eight, nine days, I guess now. It's my third trip here, and every time I come, I feel a little bit more... Connected. And I think it's because Canada and uh, Australia had a lot of the same beginnings, uh, kind of the same. We certainly have the same political system, the same parliamentary system. And so it feels very much at home here, except the wa- your water goes down a funny way, down the, the drain. And you have different stars, and it smells different and all that. But the the culture feels just so similar. And we've been actually going through the same kind of market uh, ideology, that kind of adoration of the market for about 30 years, too, and having the same kind of fallout, whether it's education or healthcare care or whatever. So this feels very familiar to me. And I have to tell you, I feel a kind of panic in my stomach around the crisis that I feel coming here. Um, And um, while I'm meeting many people who really do care deeply, and I do believe that the Australian people are way ahead of their governments, I think there's still a a level of denial in terms of the people who are in charge, whether they're politicians or academics or uh, people in charge of a lot of the media. There's just somehow... I don't know, technology will get us through and I, I, I just have this kind of nod in my stomach because I don't think that's true. So I'm going to chat at you for a little bit and then we can talk together. I just want to say, first of all, I want to just kind of situate the situation here uh, globally if, you, if we can for a few minutes. I believe that the global water crisis uh, is the most important uh, ecological and human threat of our time. And I'm not trying to compete with climate change, but rather I think water is the first face of climate change. And when you hear about uh, climate change refugees or when you hear about food refugees right now, it's generally because of water, and that connection hasn't been made as much as it should have. Uh, We all learned back in about grade six that you can't waste water. It goes round and round in the hydrologic cycle. It's a fixed amount. It won't go anywhere, so it's okay to use all you want. And, in fact, that's not true. In fact, what we're learning is that as we pollute surface water or we just have more use for surface water than we have surface water, we are turning to groundwater and mining it far faster than it can be replenished by nature. Just so many examples. One is that India has 23 million bore wells going 24-7 and a group of UK scientists two years ago said there's coming anarchy in India as the exponential drying up of the groundwater um, takes place at the same time as massive uh, pollution of, of, of surface water. Um, and so we're also taking water from river systems, totally overextending most of the major river systems of the, of the world from ma- mass flood irrigation. We're urbanizing, uh, paving over what's called water-retentive landscape, and literally, we know that we're creating deserts from areas where we've removed the vegetation that's necessary for the hydrologic cycle to function. Literally, if it it won't rain if it's got something, it doesn't have something to fall on. And as we take down forests and we take away wetlands, we remove the lungs and the kidneys of our water system. We're also doing something called virtual water trade, and you are going to hear a lot more about virtual water trade. I hope in the next. A little Little while here in Australia, because Australia is one of the three biggest water exporters in the world through this process. You've heard about embedded or embodied water that's the amount of water it takes to put a bottle of wine on your table, or a steak, or you know, your handbag, or whatever. But what people are talking about less is how much of that water actually gets exported out of your watershed and out of your country, in fact, every day in the form of virtual water trade. And and Australia, with Canada and the U.S., these are the three biggest exporters of water through this process. You're a major net exporter of water, and one could argue that um, you don't have that water to be exporting. So we're also moving water around the world from where it's needed in ecosystems to where other countries can buy it or other corporations or perhaps big corporations can buy it because they don't want to use their own water. The most startling example of this is, um, is a lake called Lake Naivasha in the Rift Valley in Kenya. I was there last year and went out on this exquisite... I, I could not tell you how beautiful it is. The color of blue is just... It's just different than anything I've seen. It holds the last wild hippopotamus herd in East Africa. And we were uh, you know, going out on this boat looking at... at um, at this marvelous place and I saw an island that had wildebeest and and, um, giraffes and everything on it and and, uh, we saw pelicans and so on and I said to the boatman this looks just like out of Africa and he said well that would be because that was where out of Africa was filmed right there you could almost see Robert Redford landing his plane right Meryl Streep waiting for him well, it turns out that this lovely, lovely lake is dying. It'll be gone in about five years, because it's been surrounded by European rose agribusiness companies, because uh, Europe is taking care of its water, so they don't want to use its, wa- its own water to their own water to produce roses which are, rose in- uh, which are water-intensive. So all the roses that you would buy pretty well in Great Britain and Europe, come from uh, either Lake Naivash or one of the lakes in the surrounding area, and the the lake is dying. It's just one small example of where a poor country or a water-poor country still sends its water away. Uh, In in Australia's case, it's not because you're a water-poor country. It's because your government, like my government, just has received its orders, and its marching orders are, you know, all trade at all costs, export competition, growth, economic globalization, part of the Cairns exporting group, can't question it, and so you just have to keep going on, even if you've come up to the water wall. So I think you're going to hear a lot more about uh, virtual water trade. So as a result of all of these um, developments and activities, uh, uh, what we're finding and what I want to say tonight so strongly is that our pollution displacement and mismanagement of water is actually one of the causes of climate change. We usually hear it the other way, that water is a consequence, water problems are a consequence of uh, greenhouse gas-induced climate change, which is true, too. The warmer the air, the the faster the evaporation, the less ice pack you have, the less snow melt, the glaciers of the world are all melting quite quickly. So it is absolutely true that water is a victim of climate change. But it is also true the other way, that as we remove water from water-retentive landscapes, we create more density desert which creates more heat which is part of the the whole issue and i, I believe that the climate change movement and the climate ch- and climate change scientists have got to start taking the issue of water into account because if we can get the the um Uh, problem right if we can analyze it right we're going to get the solution right and part of the solution of course is rainwater harvesting is integrated water management is groundwater protection so that we bring back water into areas that um, need it and I've been to places in the world that are nothing short of miracles where water has been brought back sometimes by very ancient methods Um, and when the waters come back the rains come back when the rain comes back it cools and it's one of the it's one of the answers to climate change So, as a result, however, of the fact that we're still not there yet and we're on the other end of this and we're still creating, we're still displacing water, uh, scientists are now talking about what they call hot stains. And these are parts of the world that are running out of water. This is not cyclical drought, it's not just climate change, it is running out of water. Those include 22 countries in Africa, um, most of the countries of the Middle East. They include northern China because China, while it has a lot of water, about the same amount as Canada, um, it's using its water to produce all the shower curtain liners and toys and running shoes in the world. And so they've diverted their water from food production and out of watersheds to industrial production. Um, It includes uh, large parts of southern India and several other uh, Asian countries It includes the southwest of the United States, the southeast of the United States is now in crisis, and it includes Mexico City and the whole Mexican Valley. Mexico City is actually sinking in on itself. It's um, called subsidence. When you take all the water underneath uh, your city, it just literally starts to sink. And I fear that it includes Australia at the rate that Australia is running out of water. So we're talking not about a cyclical drought that will be somehow right itself, but a a permanent change in the amount of water that exists in these communities. And if you take a look at a chart of the water demand over the next 20 to 30 years, it goes straight up. It's almost... This way, just a little bit like this, as we add another three billion people to the planet, and we industrialize, and people are getting more and more um, into the consumer culture, which is highly water intensive. And if you look at the supply, it goes this way. It's kind of like this, not even an X. The, the 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 supply and demand cross each other in a dramatic way. So we do have upon the world. I call it a comet sitting out there. Uh, poised at us. Consequently, of course, it's uh, a huge human rights issue around the world. Um, currently, it is, to my mind, water is the not only the human face of climate change, uh, but the biggest... Um, example of the difference between rich and poor in a, in a deeply inequitable world, in a world in which I believe we, are, we have created and maintained inequity. Water is the most important symbol. Um, more children die every day in our world of waterborne disease and HIV, AIDS, malaria, uh, traffic accidents and more put together. It's the number one killer of children and not one of those kids would have to die if their parents had water, uh, money for water. And I have been in countless places where, you know, even within a society in the global south, there is all the water that people need who have money for their swimming pools and their golf courses and so on. And uh, people right near them and in a township near them have no water. Um, Again, some of the... the you know, you go to the slum in Kibera uh, in East Africa, a million people, and they, they have no running water whatsoever. They have what they call flying toilets, which is that you defecate into a plastic bag and you just throw it. And, of course, you can imagine what it's like when it rains with a million people in a, in a situation like that. So we have uh, a growing crisis, but I have to say it's not just the global south. In Detroit, Michigan, in the United States, three years ago, they cut off the water to 42,000 families because they couldn't pay their water bills, and water bills are starting to go up around the world as water becomes what I call blue gold and most of these families of course were african american and so it was a huge issue around race and class and and so on so this is not going the issues of equity and the ecology are deeply deeply entwined here including in the notion that many well-intentioned people have which is if we could just find the money to hook up though the people in the Global South without money, to groundwater supplies, everything would be okay without understanding that we're destroying groundwater supplies and that water may not be there for them. And we can't look at equity until we look at uh, conservation and and source protection and reclaiming and, and... and um, reconstituting uh, clean waters, water, river systems and lake systems and, and groundwater systems so that people can live in many ways the the way they once did from the waters around them um, and not have to depend on imported water, bottled water, uh, recycled water, and so on. So this takes me, oh and I just want to say that uh, of course then because we are running out of water, this is a planet running out of water, there are crises um, and conflicts now growing around water. Several kinds of conflicts. One of them is between large urban centres which get, have the right to, to water, right, because they are big and smaller communities, rural communities, indigenous communities, peasant or tribal communities and all over the world big cities are confiscating water systems that belong in the country and they, not only it is totally unjust to the people who live there, but it disconnects uh, the water from the land. They re- literally remove the, la- the water from where it's needed for a healthy hydrologic cycle. Mexico City has taken the water that belongs to the people called the Mazawas. It's a, a First Nations group in, in Mexico, and they built a pipe into their community and built a great big fortress with armed guards and dogs, and they will shoot you if they catch you. Um, trying to get into that um, water uh, system there. Just as one example, I saw one here. Andrew and I went up to the Murabul River in near Melbourne last week. And this is a river system. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Lao La Falls, but it is a very beautiful river system between Ballarat and Geelong. Um, But a month ago, the government, the state government, just made a decision, and with a stroke of a pen, this is done, to take the water, to confiscate the water from the moorable and to send it to those two urban cities. And they've just declared, they didn't say this, but it's the same as saying it, the moorable is expendable and it will die and already the trees are are beginning to go dry and the there's no more platypus in the the river and the the farmers along there have no water and it's just you know they 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 invited us into their homes and they just kind of like animals and headlights saying how we live in australia we have a democracy how could this have happened how could they just have taken our water i mean this is what you hear in dictatorships but how could this have happened here so i don't want when i speak i don't want us to think far away i want us to understand how close to home this is we're also going to see water as a national security issue for nation states that are running out particularly superpowers uh, China, because it's running out of water, is building a great big pipeline to take the water from the Tibetan Himalayas and move it um, to where it needs it for its, you know, industrial production. But this is water that belongs to and feeds the five great rivers of Asia. Now you can see a coming conflict with countries like India, as China just helps itself to water that now uh, belongs to everyone. In my part of the world, uh, the United States is running out of water. And coming, doing research on this from my book, Blue Covenant, I came upon a consortium uh, advising the Bush White House and the Pentagon on water as a national security issue. And one of the corporations advising them is Lockheed Martin, the world's biggest weapons manufacturer. Now, living in a country next to the United States that has water... I mean, it's really nervous to find out that Lockheed Martin is advising them on water as a national security issue, and there's no question that sooner than later the U.S. is going to claim Canada's water as its own, um, as we actually has already happened under the North American Free Trade Agreement with our energy. So you're going to start to see this search outside of borders just as countries are securing energy supplies. You can't maintain your superpower status if you don't have energy. You can't maintain anything if you don't don't have water. So you're going to see those conflicts. I guess the other conflict that is really um, heating up is the conflict between those who see water as a as a human right, who say that it's a commons, it belongs to all of us, um, and it should not be privatized. Um, and and that does not mean, by the way, we shouldn't put a price on it for the service. That's different. But But who say that it should be delivered as a public service on a not-for-profit basis. And those who see water as a commodity to be put on the open market for sale, like running shoes. And that side at the moment is in the ascendancy. What I have written about in Blue Covenant is the growing corporate cartel, that is now, I, I call it blue gold. My first book on water was called Blue Gold, and I say that this is the blue gold of the 21st century, um, and water is the, you know, is the coming uh, oil of, of the century, and whoever controls it will be both not only wealthy, but more importantly, probably powerful. And so the the geopolitical interests are now aligning around this as these leaders begin to understand uh, the water crisis and what a world without water is going to look like but also corporations are getting in on the act because dirty water there's money to be made in cleaning dirty water, there's money to be made in scarce water because people will pay anything they'll do anything to get water and so you get The big private utilities coming in, often uh, encouraged strongly by the World Bank. The World Bank says to poor countries, if you want loans or funding for your water services, you have to take these companies, and they come in uh, on a for-profit basis. If you can pay, you get water. If you can't... It's not their problem because they're a corporation and business, right? And there's a fierce fight back in the Global South against these companies. Fierce, fierce fight back. You get the bottled water companies. Last year we put over 200 billion litres of water in plastic bottles around the world, Most of them, 95% of them, do not get recycled. They get thrown into lakes, rivers, garbage dumps, oceans, whatever, creating massive amounts of pollution. Uh, While people divorce themselves from their taps and therefore don't want to pay money to have clean water come out of their taps because they don't drink that stuff anyway anymore and so uh, beginning to see public water systems deteriorating in parts of the world where people have just disassociated and the latest is the whole move to recycle water either actual toilet to tap recycling or desalination Um, and this is the hot new area and this is what I'm hearing more and more from governments particularly in the so-called first world Don't have to change our behaviors, don't have to lessen our water use. You can have your boutique bottled water and you can have your exports, you can have everything else. We'll just take it from the ocean. And it's such a very, very short-sighted answer. Desalination is uh, polluting, highly polluting. It puts a highly polluting chemical brine back into the ocean. They're now fi- they're now talking about choosing dead zones in the ocean. They will send it out far enough that it won't wash back somehow and they'll choose parts of the ocean that will be expendable. I don't know how one makes that decision. I would sure worry about it for a country like Australia surrounded by oceans, you know, without the proper protections for these ecosystems. But this is the new, um, you know, shining city on the hill, is desalination. And I think you're going to hear a lot more about it as the answer here. It is expensive, it's energy intensive, it creates more global warming, of course, because of the H2O emissions and so on. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that happens when you put billions of dollars of investment into a technology, governments tend to get invested in it. And even if 10 years down the road they say, well, I wouldn't have made that decision if I could have gone back 10 years, it's hard to undo. It's better not to do it in the first place than to go there. But I'm seeing the, 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 you know, the, the bowing to the the gods of technology and technology will save us as as the the answer out there and so this is all part of this corporate growing corporate ownership and control of water so this brings me to australia and what i see here Basically, And please don't think I'm a Canadian saying to you, oh, we've done everything right and you haven't. Um, we, the only difference between my country and your country is we have more water to waste, but we're trying very hard to destroy it. And our governments have taken have pathetic uh, legislation. We have no protections for our water. So believe me. The only difference is the amount of water we start off with. I am not coming here in any superior uh, way. I'm totally critical of my own government at home. I'm very often called the unofficial opposition at home. So please understand that. But I do have to say that um, you have a right to be really angry with your governments. And what we're looking at here are years and years and years of mismanagement, of uh, collusion with corporate and special interest uh, Organizations and industries and so on, um, ignoring um, scientific environmental warnings that were crystal clear at the time when some of this crisis could have been averted much more easily, of massive over allocations. The Murray Darling is over allocated anywhere from 50 to 80 percent, depending on which study you look at, but everybody agrees there are allocations for water that doesn't exist there. And of course, with the drying of the Murray Darling comes the acidification. Of the Murray Darling, and now the discussion about whether they're going to allow saltwater intrusion to protect the lakes at the end of the system just takes my breath away. Um, so, the, and I want to say, when you know, I can't believe I'm agreeing with the conservative um, minister today who said that it's, it's not just global warming it's not just global warming. It is mismanagement and abuse and over-allocation for the wrong reasons and for often for ex- massive exports of that water system that it is dying. And it is, I think, really important to say that it is a crisis and it is not just a crisis of climate change. As I use the term climate change made me do it because I hear politicians around the world saying, well, there's not that much we can do about water till we fix climate change. And no, no, you know, you can't, you, A, you can't wait, be what you're doing with your water is part of what the crisis is all about. Um, so the extension of – the overextension of water, the pollution, the uh, flood irrigation, the whole issue of virtual water in this country is going to have to be um, absolutely tackled. And as Rosemary so eloquently said, uh, talked about earlier, um, this, these, the successive governments in this country have moved to the private model – and for, actually, when I look at the Murray-Darling, and I see what they're doing now, I see that this is a scheme to privatise the Murray-Darling to keep free trade flowing and an economic globalisation model going, and and the the dependence on water trading uh, as if it's some kind of panacea is, I think, a terribly short-sighted um, response. And I'd have to say to you that um, if you if your governments tell you that everybody's into privatisation, you should say this is not true. My country, Canada, we're almost 100% public sector um, delivery and control of our water. We do not have water trading, although the province of Alberta, which is Canada's Texas, um, is looking beginning to look at water trading. And I'm going to go home with the with the Australian model to say, "Don't you dare do this," because. This is how we share information around the world. Even the United States, which is a really gung-ho, private, you know, deregulated haven under George Bush, has maintained public control of about, 90, about 85% of its water. Europe has uh, a little bit of a mix. It's about 75% public, but even the countries that have gone private, like France, which has been historically private is moving away, and the City of Paris just announced about two months ago that it's going to switch back from a private to a public model when this contract with Vivendi and Veolia are up. Um, so it's it, this, the move around the world, I have to tell you, is not the move that's being made here, although the, 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 the struggle is on in communities around the world, but it, the, the, the move to privatize when you know you're running out of water is a recipe for disaster. You cannot unbundle water Water from the land, which is the actual language that, that is being used here, and not have an, a further exa- you know exaggeration uh, of, and a further deepening of the crisis because you are removing water from the very systems that are dying for that water. Now we have to bring that that water back. For a solution for Australia, I would say this. I actually feel, I said that water, the water crisis was like a comet coming at the earth. I feel that it's like a comet coming at this beautiful country. And I did an interview with ABC television today, and I don't know, maybe a little controversial, but I said that I, I could picture refugees from Australia in the future. I mean, there are water refugees in the world now, and we think of refugees as coming from poor countries, but... You know often people will follow they will have to follow water, and i I fear for um, the future of Australia if this isn 't um, dealt with and and dealt with in a really strong manner. I actually see this kind of as a state of emergency, almost like a war as if some country had declared war on Australia. Your governments would say everything else comes second you know to this to to, to dealing with this new threat. And I feel that the moment is here for that kind of language, and would hope that we'll have um, leaders in this country that will have the courage to do that. Uh, and so that all of our activity here will be geared to dealing with this threat. And the most important part of that threat is replenishing our water systems here, so that they can operate again to give life and to give livelihood, and to give sustenance to the to the to the people, to the farms, to the animals, um, and so on uh, that live that that. Exist. Exist here. Uh, I would, I would, and uh, but I'm hoping, and I, I talked a wee bit to Rosemary about this before. But I really feel very strongly that the Australian people, the citizens of this country, are far ahead of your governments <laughs> and ready and willing to take this on, but can't seem to get through that. And I and I've met dozens of local groups around the country that are are working on the issue, but not together. And it would be wonderful to have a kind of citizens' movement here, a people's movement, uh, the Australian Water Network or whatever, that would burst onto the scene to say, uh, your politicians are going too slow, you're not handling it properly, we're here to tell you how to do this. You know, you're, good, you're leaders, you're going to follow us because we're going to tell you how what, what needs to happen. And what needs to happen here is that you need to bring in the... the public trust doctrine, um, to your water systems, including groundwater. And you need to follow a model like Vermont, and I'll tell you about Vermont. Vermont is one of the uh, New England states that has been bringing in legislation to protect its water systems, particularly groundwater, because as other parts of the United States run out of water, all these water hunters are coming in and pumping this water, just renting or buying property, sticking bore wells down and just sucking the water out. And we've been working with a lot of communities. I'm Canadian, but I do a lot of work in the U.S. Working with communities um, to, you know, to fight back and to reclaim their, their water systems. One of the big companies in Maine, for instance, is Poland Spring, which is a big Nestle company. And Poland Springs goes into little communities and, you know give some money to the, you know, they pay, pay a, a, a fee, uh, which local community, government sometimes accept. And then there, there they are. They build a big plant and it becomes its own reality. In a little place called Freiburg, Maine, every eight minutes a great big double tanker of water is rolling out of there 24-7. They've cut up the roads and they've polluted the area. The lakes are dying. The springs are dying. The wells are drying up. This is the story. So... In Vermont, they decided they better do something, so they just passed about two months ago legislation that I would love to see here and that is that they said nobody anymore owns the water uh, under their land. Nobody owns Vermont's water. It belongs to the all Vermonters. It belongs to the ecosystem and it belongs to future generations. And to use a certain amount beyond a certain daily amount that farmers are allowed and so on you have to get a permit and the permit is only given if that sustainable use of that water is demonstrated so that there is excess for that use. You will pay for it. You will pay you know, a a permitting fee, quite high. And this is the part I like the best. If there is uh, any kind of drought or any kind of shortage, there's a priority. The priority is, number one, water for drinking and living, uh, for the people of Vermont, number two for local food production, and number three for all other activities commercial activities, bottling sure. activities, and food that leaves the state food that is um, for, this, for virtual water trade, and they're very very clear, and it was a bipartisan uh, bill This was a, there was a, a, a Republican and a Democratic Senator, two women um, who proposed this it passed the state legislature um, last month, uh, you And so this is the kind of model that is being looked at in in my country, in Quebec, the state, uh, province next to us uh, where I live is in Ontario. They're going to bring in the public trust doctrine as well. This is kind of spreading throughout many places that are understanding that if they don't take measures now, um, whether you have lots of water or not, within uh, a number of years that water may not be there. Uh, we're also working toward and, – and that would mean, I think, that in Australia you would have to move to the notion of um, allocating all the water that's needed for the healthy um, – <laughs> Uh, operation, the healthy existence of your rivers and and water systems. And what's left over would then have to be equitably shared. And that would be very, very painful. But I think one of the principles, you'll have to establish a set of principles upon which that would be built, but one of them will be that local sustainable food production has to take precedence. I was talking to some folks who are uh, intensive gardeners in Brisbane, and they're not allowed to use water to grow food in their backyard, you know, for themselves, whereas there are huge allocations of water in Brisbane and other places for the big agribusiness companies. So we're going to have to, I think, have a, a rethinking of, of our priorities, and that means that we have to go through a process of setting uh, principles. What we're doing internationally, we've got an international water justice movement, and if you want any more information on it, there's tons on our website, the Council of Canadians. Um, Also, I'm chair of the board of Food and Water Watch in the U.S. Tremendous work there. There's a great group in Melbourne called Watermark. They have a fabulous book that... Uh, uh, helps communities and groups to deal with the water crisis. It tells the water history, the water law, um, what people can do, what they should be demanding of their governments, and so on. So there's really good work being done in lots of areas to access. Uh, and we have struggled, this global water movement, with the principles. And we say the answer to the question of who owns water is that no one owns water. Water belongs to the earth. It belongs to all species. It belongs to future generations it's a common, and it's a public trust, and it's a human right. Uh, And so we're working very hard to get a covenant at the United Nations to declare once and for all that water is a human right, and therefore no one has the right to appropriate it for personal profit while other people are dying. And that may sound like a motherhood, but your country has been opposed, my country's opposed, the United States is opposed, so we... Take a deep breath, and we move to the next step of this uh, process. Um, Good news is that the incoming president of the General Assembly, a man named Miguel Descotto from uh, Nicaragua, is um, very much in favor of water as a human right and water as a public service, public trust, um, and will be making water a central part of, of the work that he's going to be doing in his term, which starts in about a week so we're you know we're gaining steam here we're gaining uh, allies and so on so i call in the book for a blue covenant a covenant with the earth um not to destroy water and i actually believe water has rights outside of us which is such a, a stunning thought you know do do you know does nature have a, a right to exist if it's no longer serving us yeah i think it does and there's a wonderful book on wild law by a south african man uh Cullinan, his name is and um, I, I, I think you're going to hear in the, next, in the fu- near, near future much more talk about what rights nature has outside of um, its use to us. And as a friend of mine, Rajendra Singh, who's called the rain man of, uh, of India, who's, who's brought the, the deserts to bloom uh, with ancient rainwater harvesting techniques in Rajasthan, as he says, we have taken from nature... He calls it the nature we have taken from the nature, he says, and we have to put back to the nature. And he said, that's all you have to understand. I mean, I just love the the clear simplicity. And this man has uh, created miracles uh, with with his understanding of how, if we give back to nature, it will come back to us, and it will. I remember standing in um, a river in in uh, one of the beautiful recovery areas of the Bogotá River in Colombia, uh, which is just. So filthy in some parts. In all the pictures you see of kids sitting on garbage dumps that break your heart, well, that's the Bogota River. But there is a cleanup of 16 sites, and I was in one of them two years ago, and it was so big and so beautiful that I thought I was in the middle of the country. I mean, there is a capacity for the earth to come back to us. So this covenant with the earth is absolutely essential. We have to have a covenant with the global poor with the, those who are living without water now and um, this is going to be the hardest part of this covenant it's just the same issue as around energy uh, saying to poorer countries well you've got to skip industrialization because we can't have any more pollutants but we're still going to take all the, you know, the benefits for ourselves and how we establish some kind of equitable sharing of the world's um, rights here is going to be very hard it's not going to be sharing water per se it's going to be more equitable um, systems trade systems um, political and e- economic and social systems so that people can live with dignity within their own um, communities and countries and we need a pledge to democracy we a blue covenant with democracy that says that um, no one uh, should ever be denied water because they cannot um, pay for it so I'd like to just end the formal part of this um, and you know so that we can talk and maybe just with the beautiful words of a, of an American environmentalist whose name is Ernst Columbeck. And he coined what are called the four laws of ecology. And they apply to anything to do with the ecology, but they also, I think, specifically are very good words for us to think about when we think about water. Ernst Kallenbeck said, the four laws of ecology are everything goes somewhere, all things are connected, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and nature, bats, last. (laughs) Thank you very much.
1: thank you so much, Maud. I've I've just been absolutely enchanted to hear you say the words that I have read, and I've been so inspired by your presentation, as I'm sure the audience has been as well. Um, One of the things that I so admire about Maud is that she hasn't accepted that privatisation is inevitable. I think so many people have believed that the battle against privatisation is so over that, certainly in the legal community, what people are writing about is the re-regulation of privatised water utilities. And um, I think that's also an acknowledgement of the fact that we've given up arguing about whether or not they should be privatised in the first place. And all we want to do now is to pass legislation to re-regulate the utilities that have been privatised. And a classic example of that is in the UK. So this theory that competition will actually... Uh, protect us as consumers has not played out in many jurisdictions, which is why governments have begun to re regulate. But it's just so wonderful to meet people who have faith in the fact that the privatization debate is not necessarily over. So thank you so much. It's really a wonderful presentation you, and for all of your work. Thank you. Um, now we have time for questions. We do have a, a roving microphone. So if you'd like to... Testing?
2: That's kind of hard for me to see unless the lights go up a wee bit. So you'll have to find folks. Thank you, Rosemary.
3: Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps give us some ideas about how we can deal with the problems of getting people, and particularly people in Western countries who tend to be very wealthy and if I dare say quite selfish, to stop taking half-hour showers twice a day and and wasting so much water in their houses, and yet at the same time providing enough water to poorer families who obviously need drinking water, especially when in some places they live in the same cities. Okay, the question's terrific, and I thank you for it. Um, I would... I think that the
2: the answer to that is something called block pricing, where you and I want to be really clear. When I because people say, but you're against privatization, so you must be against pricing of water, and I'm not. I don't think they're the same thing. So I would say, if we're pricing, there should be three um, conditions. One of them is that uh, it, it, it's for the service, not for the water itself, so that it's reflecting the service that it takes service provision to bring that water to people and so that we can serve. The idea for that, of course, is to pay for the service but also to teach us to conserve. Um, so it, so that would be one condition. The second would be it, that it's done in the public sector so that if a government is charging you for this service, they take that money back. It goes for infrastructure repair. It goes for, um, you know, protecting uh, water, you know, source water and so on, cleaning up polluted, reclaiming polluted water and so on. If a private corporation is charging them, that fee, it goes to their investors. So I I think that's the second condition. But the third would be, to answer your question, this thing called block pricing, and it is being brought in in a number of communities around the world, and that's where you set a very low base fee for your certain basic needs, the, the basic needs for everybody, so that nobody is denied water and nobody has to go to a welfare office to get money to pay for water. And then after a certain amount of use, you start charging much higher. And it may be a combination of charging higher in some cases and absolutely saying no to that kind of water use. It may be that at some point we'll have to actually limit the amount of water per household, whether people can buy it or not, because some people say, well, I can afford it and I can continue to... To waste it, I do want to say, however, that and I, I I'm all for the four-minute showers and all of the technology we know and the rainwater harvesting and the rain, you know, the rain collectors and all of that. If we only take that side of conservation on and we don't touch the real culprits in terms of water um, production and water abuse, that will only take part of take care of part of the problem. And what I see is. Governments here and other places just very keen for us to get all guilty and feel that it's our, if we could just you know, turn off the tap when we brush our teeth and, you know, to cut down on our individual water use, everything would be okay. But the urban water use in this in this country, although per capita it's quite, still quite high, is a small percentage of the overall water use. We're going to have to, in this country, get a hold of the water that is shipped away in the form of cotton exports, beef exports. My heavens, they're growing olives here now, you know, this it, the, the notion and I, I hope wine exports are the last because I love Australian wine right I, save your river so you can save your groundwater so I can still have my lovely Italian wine back in Canada or uh, Australian wine back in Canada but it's it, it, I do think I do want to say that because I do hear a lot of talk about how we as individuals can make a difference and I'm not saying that that's not extraordinarily important but it's a small piece of the puzzle the bigger piece of the puzzle is industrial and agro-industrial and mining and bottling, uh, you know, privilege, if you will, and we're going to have to to, to get a handle on that um, real soon.
4: Hi, thank you
5: for your talk. Um, In Australia, I'm not sure if they have a similar system in Canada. Um, The government's trying to implement a rebate system for rainwater tanks in people's uh, backyards. Um, where do you see that model going and has it proved successful
3: in other countries?
2: You know, Rosemary may have a better answer for that. We don't have that in my country because we're still terrible water wasters and still have the water waste. Do you, do you want to, to speak to... I mean... Th- I mean, I read that in Brisbane they, they they buried the water meters in a in a wetland from the nineteen seventies. There are thousands and thousands of them buried. <laughs> uh, I was reading that in Brisbane yesterday. Um, so, so yes, you know the the rainwater, the rebates and the tax breaks and so on uh, are very very important. So I don't have anything specific to add except that I th- obviously it's really important. Yes, um,
6: yes in uh, Chennai, Tamil Nadu, um, it has become. Uh, all new buildings must have rainwater yeah. tanks. Existing buildings have to have okay. their rainwater tanks. There's a shop front. There's a very good website where you can take a virtual tour and see how, you, how they install it there, what it's doing. But again, it gets back to the situation. It has to be a homeowner who gets the rainwater tank. And there doesn't seem to be anything anywhere whereby um, landlords are encouraged through tax breaks or whatever to install rainwater tanks in rental properties. And that, to me, would seem to be a very positive move. And I haven't actually come across that anywhere.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and as in California, there are some communities now passing uh, community bylaws that developers have to implement... these kind of systems. It's interesting too, and, <clears throat> and along the, in many of the states along the Columbia, which is uh, in such dire straits, um, there, you have to prove if you get a development license, you have to prove that you have water for 30 years or whatever. So they're buying sewage water from other cities. So this is the newest thing, is to buy. <laughs> I mean, you think of privatization of water, privatization of sewage water literally, and so you will, you you know you know the people moving into that community you know what they're going to be paying for water, and it's going going to be recycled water from the folks down the way here.
3: Um, I just wanted to say, as well with the rainwater tanks, where I live um, on the Hawkesbury River, uh, a few years ago when my mum built her house, she couldn't actually legally get a rainwater tank or, and it was really difficult to get a compost system. And we have been for as long as, like, until up until this year on a septic system. And we've recently installed a sewerage system which is like servicing the whole area, and it was really difficult, if not... Well, I think in the end it turned out to be impossible to get that to be sustainable at all, and so we're using, like, ridiculously more amounts of water now instead of, even though we should be more aware of saving water, we've installed a system that uses more water. That's awful. <laughs> That's just,
2: what a morality tale.
4: <laughs> um, look, I, I think every every megalitre of water you take out of a system has some effect on the system itself. I always ask myself, how many megalitres can we take out? When? How do we decide how much we can grow, how much do we need to <coughs> how much water do we actually need as a, as a, as a
2: culture? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, thank you. the 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 comment is is uh, that every 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 drop of water, every mega liter of water that you take from a system, is going to affect the system. And and so we have to ask ourselves how we're living. I think that's kind of to paraphrase you. What kind of a, a culture we have? Yeah. I mean. It's going to be wrenching at one level I mean nobody's going to be living back in caves or whatever, but we it is going to be a different way of life, for instance, we all have come to take for granted the whole uh, sewage system, the sanitation system based on flushing, using ancient water for you know to take away uh, you know the, the, our, our um, you know all our, our our bodily functions but also just dishwasher and and you know washing machines and so on we we, we just i have become dependent on that and they the term is used as path dependency once you've set up those systems and you've put money into those systems you can't conceive of another way of doing it but of course we could we need to be collecting stormwater uh, you know we need to be separating our our bodily function uh, sewage from toxic sewage that comes together and then makes the, the first one uh, of no use for us to be putting back to be using as fertilizer and so on. But we could be doing that. We could have dual systems of grey water and drinking water in our in our homes. But I came across research in the book, during the book, that a lot of corporations don't want to do that because they think it's too expensive. So they want us to feel safe with the toilet to tap for all of all of the water, you know, and people aren't. And so you... You know, somebody said in there, I've got a quote in there, someone said, we want to do to uh, water what we did to telecommunications in the 1990s, and that's totally deregulate and privatize. We just want governments out, and we'll look after it from there. So, so, yes, you're absolutely right, and I want to agree with you, and I want to remind us that when we take a megaliter of groundwater It's a megaliter gone from a river or lake system somewhere. We forget that groundwater isn't sealed off somehow. It's all flowing. And so when you take from the ground, we have the assumption that well somehow that's different water and that'll leave the rivers intact. We're drawing down our rivers. We're drawing down our groundwater far too fast. And we're going to have to find very different ways of living, growing our food, producing everything that we use. And it's... uh, can be hard. It's going to be easier if we get in front of it than it's going to be if we do it after we've hit the water wall. Uh, thank you very
6: much for your uh, for your talk. Um, I think that uh, the discussion about water tanks and domestic water usage is, um, in a sense, irrelevant to the problem in Australia because. Uh, we've demonstrated our personal willingness to reduce our water consumption quite dramatically and no one has really protested when water restrictions have been imposed on us. Everyone's been really happy to accept that and to at least feel as though they're doing their personal bit um, for the water. I think the tragic thing in Australia is that we had this whole debate gagged for about 11 years. We had a federal government that was in denial um, that there was even a problem on either climate change or on water, their insistence on using the term drought um, in for rural Australia. Um, and I would just make the observation that I think we already have water refugees in Australia as rural families are having to abandon um, their livelihoods and... Um, And this concept of virtual water that you spoke of where we have cotton state growing stations in Queensland um, uh, using sufficient water uh, for a town of 400,000 people to grow cotton, and they're paying $3,000 for the right for that that volume of water that would fill the Sydney Harbour ten times. And... So we have got an extraordinary level of ignorance, I think, here in Australia about the magnitude of the problem and just how little time we actually have left to do anything about it. And the tragedy is that we've got, um, with all respect to you, a Canadian coming here and telling us um, what the problem is and we don't have enough Australians actually speaking in these sort of fora um, to describe and to you know, to, I guess, motivate people to actually almost go to the barricades on it because that's how serious I think it is.
2: Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your the clarity of your statement. I deeply agree with every single word you said. Um, I, I, and I think the anger is should be there and, frankly, should be unleashed a little bit. I really do think the time has come for pleasantly, politely... Um, arguing this out, I mean though, that voice that the, what you just said needs to become it needs to become public knowledge. Uh, again, you know, people say, "Well, what can I do?" And I'll, I'll I'll turn my shower off and so on. Every single person living in this country could could adapt even more, and it would not make the difference. It needs to be made. Uh, they will not touch the big vested interests, and they won't because they have. They, even this government, even the labor government, while it may be more concerned, and, and, and do, it is better, I'm not suggesting that it's not, but it, it adopts the perceived wisdom of globalization, of privatization, of least government is best government, the market's at the center of our world, the markets will determine everything. It's the mantra that started back with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and swept through all of our countries and then was picked up and adopted by the World Bank and the World Trade Organization and imposed on the Global South. And everybody in the world knows it's not working except the leaders. And they're like, I I sometimes think political leaders are the first genetically engineered (laughs) humans among us right it's like they sounded human when they ran for office but they all say the same thing nothing you can do the trains left the station this is the only process i've got to work within this exactly what rosemary was saying that even if i think we shouldn't have done it the water markets for instance as one example years ago and most recently two years or a year and a half ago um i won't undo it we can't undo it this we're, we're we're wedded to this and i even debated a lovely man not debated but was on a panel with a lovely man named Mark Davis, who's written a wonderful book called *The Land of Plenty*, at the Writers Festival in Melbourne, and Mark had a brilliant analysis of what is wrong, but then at the end adopts the market model because he. And I talked to him. He said, "Well, it's just here, <laughs> and it's that assumption that there's nothing you can do about it." And I feel very, very strongly until that is challenged, and until that entrenched, um, uh, um, you, you know, that entrenched, the entrenched power. Uh, of those interests, the cotton growers and the and the, the big corporate agribusiness and the mining companies and the bottled water. I was I saw one bottled water operation taking massive amounts of bottled water near Melbourne. They're paying a hundred a fee of one hundred and ninety eight dollars a year. I mean people should be real upset about that. They should be lying down in front of the trucks coming out of that out of that out of that bottled water plant in india let me tell you when cocoa and these a lot of these are coca-cola plants in india coca-cola plants come in now they do set up these great big fortresses and they are pretty formidable uh, but you're talking about some of the poorest communities in the world some of the poorest most disenfranchised people in the world and they just they just protest until something happened i was in platchamata kerala um Three years ago, and sat for a couple of days in a protest, silent protest with the women across from the Coca-Cola plant. They would sit from dawn to dusk every day. Women from well, little babies up till 90 years old. I'm not saying a word, just all silent protest. But it became such a cause in in India that scientists came and and environmentalists came and lawyers came and people researched and they started looking at what happened. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and a year and a half ago, they shut down the 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 Coca-Cola plant. Coke was just told to leave. They said, you're destroying the, the livelihoods of the people in this valley. You have to go. And since then, there's been this movement called Quit Coke India. Uh, Quit India Coke. Yeah, Quit Coke India, that's what it is. And in community after community after community, Coke's leaving. And I debated the vice president of Coca-Cola in the U.S. one time in Lubbock, Texas, where he lives. And he said... <laughs> He said, uh, we're a guy named t Boone Pickens, you know, the billy gazillionaire who owns all the energy in the world. Well, now he wants to own the water, so he's buying up all these water rights and hoarding it until he can buy the entire right-of-way to build a pipeline to take that water out of the state um, and sell it. Anyway, I debated the vice president of Coca-Cola, and he said to me, well, these people won't compromise. And I said, wait, 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 okay, let's get this right. These are tribal people who have lived in this community for thousands of years. They don't pollute. They live in, in, you know, total harmony with their land. They not only grow enough food for themselves, and they're all healthy, they grow enough food for the local communities, towns, villages, and even in some cases cities. You come in, you put a great big plant, you take all their water, you sell the sludge from your coke plant back to them and pretend it's fertilizer, you kill what's left of their, this is a true story, you kill what's left of their land um and they're supposed to compromise like what's the compromise here go home you don't belong there this water belongs to these people leave it leave it clean in the ground let it do what it's supposed to do which is is produce food for them and a, and a place and a beautiful place for them to live so I, I i really feel if i could say that the that anger is going to be okay here and 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 to build that towards some kind of more um um organized in some kind of more organized way is extremely important as a next step. Um, I'll, come, I'll, come, I'll come and live here for a year and help set it up. I, I, I like a little anarchy.
0: Yes. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much. It's a terrific talk uh, you've been given. And I was wondering, after okay. your last comments, and so if, okay, we are after change, like in Vermont... Uh, what do you think happened? Do you think you had these two women um, who it was on their political agenda already before getting elected, or they responded to the pressure of civil society in Vermont? Or and the second part would be how the corporate sector reacted to this new legislation, which was that uh, you know you couldn't you can't use um, the groundwater. Mm-hmm. While Vermont
2: is a little different than other parts of the
0: United States, it'd be harder to do
2: that in Texas or California, They're where they still have the the whole concept of prior rights for water. Although the fights are coming together, there's a big fight against Coca-Cola in or Nestle in Mount Shasta in California, and the local community won. Another community in California. Uh, They had sold their water utility, their public company, to a private company, and the people actually voted to raise their own taxes so they could buy the water utility back. I mean, you know, so it's just amazing what's happening around the world. The people in Uruguay four years ago had a plebiscite And they got enough names on this, signatures on this plebiscite to hold a referendum at their annual, at their uh, election, their four-year election, national election, um, to to actually force a constitutional amendment saying that water is a human right. I mean, there are wonderful, wonderful examples around the world. In Vermont, actually, it was a really nice story. A woman named Elizabeth Courtney, who runs the Vermont Natural Resources Council, read my first book, Blue Gold, and said, well, that's just terrible. This is happening around the world, but I'm sure we're protected here in Vermont. Went to look and found out that wasn't true. And and it's a smallish community. And she went to these two women senators, and she said, look what's happening to our water. Meanwhile, there were there's water concerns from local communities all over the place. And it was bubbling up, if you'll forgive the pun, because these Water uh, particularly the bottled water companies are all over Vermont, so they the legislatures were hearing concern, and along came Elizabeth with an answer and the answer was this sensible legislation, and she needed these bipartisan sponsors, so it was just a dream of a situation, but you know you never know what's going to come together. The the moment is right is coming here to be right for a new solution, something that sounds sensible and something that's different. Because what's happened here is not working. It's just not working. And more of the same, with a little re regulation, is not going to work either.
5: Um, thank you very much for coming and sure. uh, for what you've said. Um, one, one little point, and I think it must apply in other parts of the world, that Perth has a metre of rain in six months and virtually nil for the rest of the year. And the water tank, in fact, would be battling against the existing use. Just um, put, your, put the mic up to your... Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's OK. Um, the, the present in Perth, people have bores down. They're tapping the, the underground system. Now, maybe if you have a water tank... Um, Big enough, it could be some help. But I think that we've got to think very carefully about yeah. the costs, the benefits, and what you're achieving. Um, I was involved in setting the price, working out industry prices for oxygen. Um, and what, what is oxygen worth? And I said, well, it depends on what, what, how much of it you get. But if you get a bottle of injectable, uh, it's worth a $1,000 a kilogram. If you get... Um, uh, potable grade. It, it should not be that one dollar a kilogram that we're being char- charged at the moment, but a hundred dollars. Now, if you're buying potable water because you're going to drink it, that's still a bargain. And then you get into the injectables, and you're looking at what should be the the net amount of injectable uses something like a thousand times as much as, as you started with, at which you start off with a ton of water if you want to make a kilogram of injectable water in, in all the little ampoules. So and water in the um, desalination is uh, a major underestimated cost because people aren't using those figures that I was quoting. They're, they're using, as you said, $200 a year for a fee, um, whereas it, uh, Well, you've, I think, shown us that that's uh, a crazy number um, I think i better stop at that point.
2: Thank you. And you tell me where I'm going
7: Kath Robinson, Maud from Rivers SOS. I don't know whether you've... Oh, yes, hi. Oh. <laughs> now, look, I want to take a bit of umbrage, as it were, over here. Rage, right? perhaps, after But uh, If you just put your... Uh, yeah. yeah, here it is, this phallic object. Um... <laughs> Look, uh, I belong to Rivers SOS. Now, we've had to struggle to get money. Today, the Vice-Chancellor at Sydney, my university, gave us the Footbridge Theatre. Did a hell of a lot of of, um, publicity. 30 students. One of my colleagues. This has happened again and again, no matter how hard we work. Try and get it onto media. Lucky if you get anything. A major problem, too, is this government... We've got amendments to the EPA Act. You know this, Rosemary. And this Part 3A has been instituted. The Mining Act of 1992 is set up where individual landholders have got absolutely no capacity to to be there in terms of the the, um, power of the mining corporations. Now, this is happening up in the north with the Gunnedah Plains where one of the farmers was threatened with going to court. How do we deal with this political situation? This government is eroding our civil rights. And we have five major mining companies wrecking rivers. There's some eight major rivers in New South Wales. Waterways going. Last night, we did do some civil rage. And actually, uh, BHP, they're going to try and uh, um, Longwall mine our, our little community. They held a meeting... It was very cleverly done. They, they put a, a sort of a big thing in the middle of the room so we couldn't actually talk as a community. So we tore it down. And there was such rage. <laughs> you know, it is a political act. How do we impeach this government? They're dangerous. They are dangerous. We have a legal system which is complicit with it.
2: I take it you're talking about the state government, or I the am. federal? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this. Is, oh, sorry. And the, the
7: the problem here is we've got an antiquated constitution, arbitrary straight ballot boundaries, and rivers and, and waterways don't com, they don't comply with those boundaries. So the federal government will be in war yeah. with the New South Wales state government. Yeah. We've got a totally difficult <laughs> political. How do we get? How do we handle this political situation?
2: Well, look, I have no magic answer for you it 's the <laughs> no, I, the only answer I have is the answer you know, and it 's just hard work and it 's just knowing that somehow that something will tip and something will change I mean, look at the movements through history against slavery, for the right to women to vote against violence against women you know there it, sometimes it's almost like I read this wonderful book a couple of years ago. It's an analysis of social and political movements, justice movements, and how very often they give up just before they're about to win because, boy, it's real steep just before you're about to win because the resistance against it is very, very strong. You don't know the power that you have, and you, you must just keep speaking, and you must find others who feel the same way, and all of a sudden you're not a lone voice anymore. When we went to the Moorable the other day, I said to them, do you know this folks, and I've been... Here's me coming from Canada, and I, do you know these people are working on uh, protected river systems, or, you know, the, or for the, f- calling for, for legislation on, on integrated uh, river systems and so on. No, nope. you know, it's like... It's the separation that's the biggest issue here. And, and, uh, and I, I somehow you are going to have to find each other across this wonderful country because I believe there are thousands of groups like yours uh, working here kind of in isolation hundreds certainly but I mean really if you look at small community groups along the rivers that might only be a small little community there I think you'll find that there's a awareness there that's just kind of dying to to get out and and no, maybe when you hold an event at the university the students are busy and people don't see it but I do feel that the moment's coming here for something and and if we could have this kind of I don't know I would love to see a big national symposium where the people speak not sponsored by governments not you know outside of government which it means somebody's going to have to find a way to get some funding to do that but it's it's how my movement in canada was started it wasn't around water it was 1985 the, my government was talking to uh the reagan government about the first free trade agreement in the world and we just came together and built a movement uh, very concerned about what that would mean and all these years later, it's 1985, so I've been there um, chairing it for since the second year in. Uh, we now have close to 100,000 members, you know, and we're totally dependent on our members. It's just a membership-based organization. So when we say we're angry about something, we get heard. And it took years and years and years to build that through church basements and so on. I don't know a better model than getting citizens together, finding ways to put us together on a listserv, because we've got a listserv capacity. We press a button with the message, and we can reach thousands and thousands of people that like that. And we say to them, we've even got them... Postal code, you know, so we can say we want we only need these three ministers to be targeted. So don't don't everybody get on on the act. Only the people who live in their ridings should be bothering them. I had a politician once phone me and say, "Call them off. <laughs> you win. Call them off. They're driving me crazy because we also give them the phone number, and so people phone in right." And, so you, you can have power. I, you know, Margaret Mead said, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed citizens. It's, it, it, it is, in the end, uh, what will, will make fabulous change, and you mustn't give up because hope is a moral imperative and we just have no choice. But, and we'll be meeting tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Right. sure i'm fine do you want to do three at a time three all together and i can answer them all at once how's that
3: um thank you for being here i'm just over here in the corner ah, there you are <laughs> um i can't tell you how excited i was to hear you say on radio this morning on abc radio this morning that Uh, The Murray-Darling problem is about water displacement and not climate change, because I believe that um, particularly urban Australians are being mind-numbed into believing that it's about climate change, Mm -hmm. when it clearly is not. Um, My question is, um, uh, do you work with um, farmers and people in agriculture? in terms of um, farming systems that improve hydrology, land hydrology and so forth. There's some great innovators in that area in this country who've worked for years and years and years and they're not getting a voice and they're not getting any funding and they're not, they're not being heard and they're being pilloried. And on the other hand, the federal government's about to start handing out money mm-hmm. to farmers to leave their so-called marginal land when it's really just about um, land management practices. So that was my question. Great. Thank you,
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. I was very pleased to hear you um, mention, you didn't say the word causation, but Thatcherism and Reaganism or Thatcheromics and Reaganomics. I'm an agribusiness consultant and I follow on very much from what my friend down the front row just said. I interact in a lot of cases in farm debt mediations and very often my clients, and I'll use the word, have been shafted by the banks because they're innovative farmers and they're trying to do the right thing by the environment and they are certainly in many cases irrigation farmers who have adopted practices that are environmentally friendly, conservation minded and respect to water and then the bank comes along and we've got a very bad banking system in this country because it's four major banks and one follower that's about to be gobbled by the others. Now, with the World Bank dictating and we're followed on from globalisation of finance, I see the, the problem really as coming from the causation of the financial sector, the international financial sector, is screwing everyone. Everyone is driven by greed. And at the end of the day, those who, who adopt environmentally friendly practices are the ones that miss out. Would you give a comment on that please? And finally, I can Do you need the microphone? I was just wondering if
2: the status quo remains on the Australia, what's to be defined the future of War? Okay, thank you so much. And the wonderful, wonderful discussion and wonderful questions. What, starting with the last question, I wouldn't want to put a time on it. It frightens me to do that. I do think that Adelaide is in trouble. I do think that, you know, Melbourne and Sydney are looking at, I don't know, three, five, ten years of water. I mean, unless massive desalination is in place, um, which may happen. I mean, here's my nightmare for here. The, the land keeps drying up. They, the Nothing changes the over-extraction you're talking about, the not working with the, the good practices and the farmers who have good practices, and just business as usual keeps going, and Australia's land base just dries up. And I just see hundreds of desalination plants ringing the oceans. And that, if, I have, if I have a nightmare for this beautiful country, that's it. Now, oh, well, we've got the ocean. Let's just take the water from the ocean. The oceans are in trouble anywhere. The oceans the ocean's gave us life it's where life came from and we you know take we're going to take out the fresh water and and deeply acidify it and 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 you know put ma- uh, intensive salinity back salt concentrate and chemicals back it's it just frightens me, and that. So you want to ask me what my vision is? I don't think that's much more than twenty years away. Um, that vision it doesn't. We don't have to go there at all. And I think what your answer on decel is that's what you do when you've run out of all other options, and you have not run out of all other options in this country. And that if I were if I lived here, that would be my you know just the stand that you the people here have to take. In terms of farmers, to put the two comments together, because I think they were parts of the same question, and that is that there are wonderful farmers who are being badly hurt, being badly treated, farmers who've come up with alternatives. Generally, they're the smaller farmers, the family farmers, the farmers who, who've who lived on the land for many years, as opposed to the agribusiness farms. And you're right. You know, the, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization totally favors big over small, uh, the high yield, no matter what the environmental dev- devastation or, you know, dividend is over the, the, the more environmentally uh, Secure yield and it 's part of the changing culture that has to take place in this country and around the world Now, i've spent i 've been tear gassed at World Trade Organization meetings. I love getting tear gassed there I, the like Last time I was tear gassed was in Hong Kong. It was really, oh, there was a little something special in that tear gas. I thought, we, I really thought we were all going to die. I was just, I was like, okay, I'm dying now. I always phone my poor husband when I'm being tear gassed. He says, why do you do this and upset me? I always say, Andrew, i will be tear gassed. But we don't get tear-gassed for no reason. We get tear-gassed because we're standing with uh, people who are saying, this isn't a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper. It's people's lives. And I'll tell you about the WTO meeting the time before Hong Kong was in Mexico, was in uh, in um, Cancun, Mexico. And what they did was they had the, the WTO uh, negotiators and all their advisors and all the political leaders down in the five-star hotels down in Cancun they put a barricade, a big police barricade, in the road between that and the, and the town of Cancun, which is what actually provides the workers uh, for these uh, five-star hotels and so on. And the first day, there was a very big protest with farmers and peasant farmers from around the world led by the Mexicans, and they came up against this huge fence and thousands and thousands of of police, Mexican police, in the riot gear and the dogs and everything. And uh, the group of Koreans from South Korean came kind of up the middle. There were about 250 of them. And they were all dressed in uh, in similar outfits, and they had signs saying WTO kills farmers, because the WTO rules, which is what you were talking about, which does not promote sustainable local agriculture, but takes all the best farmland for the global supermarket, right, has literally caused these terrible suicides, suicide rash in in, um, in their country. There have been a huge suicide, uh, rashes, uh, you know, rushes of suicides in, in India, um, in the belts where Monsanto and, and uh, companies like that have come in. But anyway, the, the man who led this was a man named Lee Kyung-hai, and he came up to the front barricade, and he climbed up on the barricade. We thought, oh my God, someone's going to shoot him, and he took this sign, uh, you know, WTO kills farmers, and he and he took a knife and he put it in his heart. And It was a terrible thing. And he fell, he wavered back and forth on this uh, fence, and he fell and he died. We were all standing there. No one knew he was going to do it. The other South Koreans were in just just devastated. Nobody knew he was going to do this. He left a note back at the hotel, he didn't even unpack, saying... I can't deal with what's happening anymore. I was going to do this anyway, and I chose to do this here because I needed to make a statement that this is this is about people's lives and livelihoods. It's about, you know, it's about people's local rights around the world and how the, those people in the five-star hotels who will drink too much and, and, you know, go to their five-star restaurants and so on and have no sense of what's happening out here will make deals and decisions that affect people's lives, you know. It was very, very moving. What would happen is that the local... The South Koreans and the Mexican farmers set up a shrine in, in this, in the, uh, high, on the highway. The police were wonderful. They kind of backed up, and there were negotiations that took place that allowed peaceful demonstrations to happen all that week. Some of the delegations came out. Actually, I give them credit, came out, and uh, the Italian delegation came out. My c- Canadian delegation did not. I was embarrassed. But some of them did come out and visit the shrine. Uh, and it was a, an extremely moving uh, week and so the whole of the of the week and the negotiations were seen through this the lens of the death of Lee kyung Hai. Um, and we won that round i mean the 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 <laughs> i was in the big trade and convention center when the african delegate uh, the delegations got up and said what part of no don't you understand and walked out and then the asians walked out and so on and you just to see the the leaders in in our countries australia Canada, the United States, and Europe, just, you know, well, this is the end of the world and the end of trading and the end of economic globalization. Isn't it terrible? And we all started to sing um, this song, uh, Money Can't Buy buy the world we had we were already we had our song sheet so it's money can't buy the world you know it's and uh, it, it was just a, a moment but it was a moment of joy but of course it was a moment of sadness because somebody had had to do to give their lives in order to be the symbol to stand up to this kind of thing people in the world know what's wrong with this the farmers the small farmers the people around the world know how we can do this better and um we have to make our leaders listen. And so if they're good leaders, they'll, they'll follow when we tell them what to do. And, and we need to build a movement. And I promise to work with you as hard as I can from uh, around the world, um, my little place around, across the world, uh, to make this happen.
3: And when you get discouraged,
2: uh, you remember what a 95-year-old friend of mine says when she says, when, oh, she's she's been involved in every fight, including the vote for women and everything. And she says, oh, you young people. And she says, by that I mean anyone under 85. And she says, you know, you just think that, that building is, you know, working for social justice or working for environmental justice is just something you can do now and then and change your mind. Well, it's not. When she gets all wound up. And she says, working for justice, well, it's like It's like taking a bath. You do it every day or you stink. So thank you so much.